You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator and your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. And on previous podcasts, we've had the opportunity to explore how the art impacts our lives, art of various mediums, whether that be the visual arts or the performing arts or even the written arts. And we know that art impacts our culture. It impacts those who are delivering and performing it and creating it, but it also impacts all of us who absorb it. Diana Beyer, about all of the wonderful work that she's done there over the years and how she has put her own imprimatur on our culture and on audiences and performers. Diana, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Art. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Diana, let's talk about you for a minute. Let's talk about your life and how it be, how it began and how it led you to starting and and entering a career of dance and and theater arts for that matter. Well, I had a very strange beginning, I have to say. Um, I was this very, very chubby child, and the pediatrician told my mother that if I didn't exercise, I would become an obese adult. So she took me to dance classes, and that's how it started. And I studied with a wonderful teacher, Francis Kiernan, right through high school, and then I was lucky to get into the Juilliard School and came to New York. and studied with the great teachers, Anthony Tudor, Margaret Krask, Alfredo Corvino, Mary Hinkson, Sarah Stackhouse at Juilliard and got work right away and just danced. I turned professional when I was 17. Well, Juilliard doesn't accept anyone. I know there are long lists of people who want to be um, enrolled into that school because of what they receive in terms of training and education. Um, you must have been fairly amazing. You must have been quite a standout in order to uh, to achieve that. And I, I guess I would also say you were uh, a, a pretty serious dancer uh, from a pretty early age. When did you realize that maybe you had a shot at being a professional? Well, I never wanted to do anything else with my life. As soon as I started my first dance class, that was the direction I wanted to go in. So for me, there was never a question. For my parents, that was a different story. That for me, it was always dance. It was to be my life. And that's what it's turned out to be. Well, we do hear a lot of nervous parents who have children who enter the arts. 
they worry that they'll not be viable. They won't be able to, to make a living. I had a recent conversation with a young woman who has a, a degree and now a master's degree in vocal arts. And she is terrific. She's amazing. And she's sort of charting her own path. She's classically trained. She talks about carving out her own way to success. And it won't probably be through many of the classical f- forms. She's not going to pursue a career in, in opera, for instance. Although what she will do will have elements of what she learned as she begins to find her own way. But what was so interesting about her was that she was also raised by two parents who are also artists, and she received all the encouragement that someone might receive even at uh, at an early age. And there was never any of this talk about, well, you need to make sure you're able to get a job and, and have a living, which I hear a lot of artists have to struggle with. Yeah, my parents are like that. But I dug my heels in, so <laughs> I did what I needed to do and left home at 17 and went to Juilliard and then kind of found my way over the years. It was a struggle and then sometimes not a struggle. It changed year to year. Well, what would you say to people who maybe are like you? Not all of them, of course, will achieve your level of success. But what does participating in the arts do for young people in particular, even those who won't go on to be prima ballerinas or, or even work at it professionally. What does it do for a young person? And, and how does it potentially create even a sense of wanting to give back and provide for our culture and society in your opinion? Well, I, for me, all art forms fill your soul. You know, it's not from the outside. It's from the inside. And what really is art? It's about generosity. You create your art to give to someone else, right? If someone writes a novel, it's for someone else to read. If you are a musician, it's for someone else to hear. If you're a dancer, it's for someone else to view the dance. If you're a painter, someone looks at the painting. So to me, it's teaching generosity of spirit. And I think it's one of the most important qualities a person should have. And I think that's what art does for young people. It teaches them a generosity of spirit. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think that we need to do everything in our power to assure that our upcoming generations see the importance of generosity and are are often willing to to give back and support those in different ways who who need our help, as you have. Well, I just wanted to say that I think children from an upper class, middle class backgrounds have opportunities to be a part of arts education. But one of the reasons I started the LIFT program is so that children that are disadvantaged or coming from homeless shelters, they don't have those opportunities. And I think it's important that they learn about this feeling of generosity and how they can succeed. And I think always an art form does that. And it teaches learning skills. It teaches so much more than just the pleasure of the art form. Yeah. 
Well, I want to talk about the lift program. I want to talk about the, the ballet itself, which you created. And tell me what motivated you to actually start the company and how do you feel you've succeeded with it? What were some of the challenges in the early days? Well, I was never motivated, I have to say. It fell in my lap. I came back from dancing in Canada with Les Grand Ballet Canadienne, and some male dancers came back to New York after dancing companies in Europe, and we all studied with Margaret Krask. So we all kind of descended back to class together, and the boys wanted to choreograph. And I thought, well, why do you want to do a whole evening, an hour and a half to two hour evening of your own work when you're just starting out and you're all using the same dancers? Why not each of you do one piece and we'll try and make a program? So that's what happened. We made a program and the program got booked. And I said that I would stay on to do the paperwork and the busy, you know, the desk work for three months and then you find an artistic director and the three months has turned into 44 years. <laughs> so that's how it happened. It wasn't anything I ever thought of doing. I just wanted to dance and this is what happened. And the teaching happened because Margaret Krask had a pupil, Livia Vanover, who didn't know the adagios and she asked me if I would teach her the adagios and I said, sure. And then she brought a friend and then that friend brought two friends. And then all of a sudden I had a school and it was nothing I ever planned on. And I think that's a lovely way to go through life that it just sort of happened and you go with the flow and you grab the opportunity. Well, and as you pointed out earlier, you were focused on delivering something for others as well as yourself. And look what happened. It seems that sometimes when our focus is on making sure that we're doing for others that maybe good things come to us as well. Let me ask you, when you started the organization, though, did you have some specific objectives in mind? What were you thinking about at the time? And did that objective change throughout those 44 years in any way? Yes, it did. It did change. I think in the beginning, it was just to to dance. We all wanted to dance. And so that's what we did. And we tried to find the right ballets to make a good program. That was my job. But then Skylar Chapin, who is the commissioner with the Department of Cultural Affairs, had this fabulous idea of bringing shelter children to different arts organizations over the winter break. And we were one of the arts organizations. So the first year they bust in 35 children from a specific shelter to us. And we had the children for that full week of winter break. They came at nine o'clock. They got a hot breakfast, a beginner ballet class. Then we did an hour and 15 minutes of reading skills and vocabulary because I personally think education is extremely important. And then we did a hot lunch. And then we set up a room with over 3,000 books that I was able to get donated. And the children took 20 books home per day for the five days. And we had books for their parents, books for their siblings and books, you know, for their age group. And then that experience made me want to keep this going because there is a little flaw in the program. You give the children this fantastic experience in the arts one week only, and then you take it away that to me didn't make sense. So we just kept it going. Um, 
and offered scholarships to not just the very talented children, but to children that were very courageous and were kind of willing to grab the bull by the horns and study. And mothers that seemed to care about education. So we offered full scholarships and mentoring and tutoring and all sorts of things. So that took on a direction of its own. And then one of our board members worked on Sesame Street with Jim Henson. His name was Kermit Love, and he took care of Big Bird, and he made Snuffleupagus. And I was sitting on the steps with Jim one day, and we were talking about how to bring arts to inner city children. And he suggested, why not try a nutcracker that's just a little under an hour, invite inner city kids and see what happens. And we worked together and put together this nutcracker, and then that grew into our Once Upon a Ballet series. So we have you these different sorry, strands. The Once, Once, upon, Once a ballet? upon a Ballet series. Ah, okay. Tell me about that. That sounds phenomenal. Oh, it's so it's really fun. They're one-hour ballets and sometimes a little bit under for children, but they're sophisticated enough that the parents really enjoy it. And we have Alice in Wonderland. We have Mother Goose, which we're doing, in fact, on May 7th and 8th. The Mother Goose is terrific because kids don't know verse anymore. And this is all about verse. We have Alice in Wonderland, Mother Goose, Carnival of the Animals, Nutcracker, of course, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. And before each show, I talk about the jobs that everyone does besides the dancers to bring a program to the audience. So we're doing stage managing for Mother Goose. And we just did lighting design and we do music, and it's just a 10-minute little lecture. We tell the kids what spike tape is for, what are those funny marks on the stage, and just show them that there's other jobs besides performing that are really interesting. Yeah, I really think that's a really important element because, as you mentioned, as we talk about, not every kid will go on to, to be a performer, but there are so many different career tracks within the arts that a person might choose to pursue, but they need some exposure. Right. And, you know, that exposure can be the spark that leads to a career of fulfillment in, in a different uh, profession. It's so wonderful that you do that. I, I'm an athlete, former athlete, certainly not now. And I often think about the same thing. There's so many different careers in sports that people could pursue everything from marketing to how to as you say, how to build a set, to how to choreograph, to direct. So there's so many different careers that a person might have. It's really wonderful to know that you're also giving young people that exposure. Do you have any stories, for instance, of young people pursuing these? Or I should ask, what are they doing now? Because it doesn't really matter. Uh, at some point, having, I think, this discipline also is a value that leads to yeah. lots of different kinds of success in life. It really does. Most of the children have gone to college, not all. You know, we don't have 100% success stories by any stretch of the imagination. But we have one boy who is now dancing with New York City Ballet. We have Stephen Melendez, who was from Seneca House Shelter, who will be taking over the company as of August 1st when I step down. I will be still running the school. Uh, I'm still artistic director of the school, but I feel it's time after 44 years. And Stephen 
was part of this program from the Department of Cultural Affairs uh, coming out of the Seneca House shelter and he'll be taking over the company. He's been dancing all over the world. For the past three years, he's been doing Jacques Dembois' satellite program for the Dance Institute, and he's been doing it in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I think he's very well prepared to take over. We have one girl who just, just, and I'm so proud of her, she just got into the Secret Service. She passed the test for the Secret Service. So in these 44 years, I'm just trying to get some sense of, of what you've accomplished here. What have been some of the big highs for you? And in that in that regard, not only highs for you personally, but per highs for you because of what you were able to do for others? Well, let me start by saying we're a small arts organization in a big city surrounded by some of the biggest, most well-known and best arts organizations, dance companies in the world. We fall through the cracks. A company like New York Theater Ballet will always fall through the cracks when you're in this kind of a city. I think that that we've survived 44 years as a small arts organization is miraculous. I think that that we have been able to give so much to these children that otherwise would be on the corner selling drugs or what what would they be doing? And we've been able to really guide them. We've been able to get mentors that look after the children, look after their school, you know, talk to the principal, make sure they keep their grades up, help them with college applications, and make sure they have uh, socks and pajamas. We try to do give every child everything they need for learning. And I, I'm very proud of that. I'm also proud that our repertory has, we've given emerging young choreographers a chance to work with professional dancers and work with our costume designer, Sylvia Nolan, who's the resident costume designer at the Metropolitan Opera. She started out as a dancer with my company. These young choreographers get to meet with her and learn the language so they can really speak to a costume designer. And we give them an opportunity to produce their work and get seen and get reviewed by Alistair McCauley in the New York Times and G. Corliss. And I'm very proud of that part of, you know, that's another strand of our program is giving these young choreographers a chance to really create and they get a salary to do it. Even during COVID, we worked with 21 different choreographers and that we've been able to do lesser known masterworks by master choreographers. That's always been a part of another strand of what we do. So I'm proud of all of that and proud that I've been able to keep a school teaching the Giacchetti method of training, which is a method that's not very well known in the United States. And our dancers dance with my company, with New York Theater Ballet, or they go off and dance with other companies or or make a life, you know, they've learned the discipline and learning skills and generosity of what you need to succeed in the world. And that's what I'm proud of. Well, and it's not over. So you have, you have this new project, uh, the Lyft project. I'd like to hear about that. Well, Lyft is a program for children 
either living in shelters or if they're in public housing, they've left the shelter or are otherwise disadvantaged. You know, there's many ways to be disadvantaged in New York City. And they get a full scholarship. Children that are, I think, have talent and a lot. I always use the word courage. They can kind of grasp what they're given. I try to get them scholarships at private schools if they're falling behind. And I try, if I feel they need a mentor to keep track, and I can't always, to pair them up with a good mentor. Uh, if they need tutoring, we can tutor. You know, we'd have a balcony. I don't do any of this in public. I don't like anybody to know who's in the scholarship program because I think it doesn't do good service to the child. It's everybody's equal. So I know, and my assistant knows, sometimes the teachers don't even know. So it's kind of a safe haven. You can be who you are here. Yeah, we just try to do everything the child needs that we can. And we're not a social service organization. I do want to put that out front. We're not that. In the old days, when we were able to get some real funding, we had a social worker that worked with the parents while the children were in the studio dancing. But, um, you know, funding's been down. We haven't been able to afford that. And we used to have a car service that would bring the children that, especially from Seneca House, which I like working with that, that shelter. Well, let's hope some people hear about this and send you some money to, yeah. to actually do that. <laughs> One can only hope, right? <laughs> yeah, let's hope they hear yeah. about it. I think you're doing terrific work. Now, you have a, also um, a new film of sorts coming out about this. Am I... Yeah. No, that's exactly right. This documentary filmmaker, David Peterson, has followed us, the LIFT program, for 11 years. Yeah, sometimes it was pretty difficult, <laughs> but it was 11 years. He watched Stephen grow up, who's taking over the company, and also uh, Victor Abru, who's now with New York City Ballet and doing very well, and followed him and followed two children that were still in Seneca House that were coming to dance classes. And the film, I was kind of shocked to tell you the truth. I saw it just two weeks ago, the finished film, and it's pretty terrific. It shows what shelter life is for real. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It's not about the families with their social worker. It's not. It's about what you go through day to day. And I think it's very special. And I, I was stunned. I, you know, I know these children, and I was so moved by watching it. And we had very, very good news that it's been picked up by the Tribeca Film Festival. So it will be shown publicly in June. We don't have the date yet, but... It's, I think, June 8th to the 19th, something like that. Well, I hope for people like me who live outside of New York that we can get it streamed as well. So I'm sure it will be. And I'm hoping it'll go to theaters all over because I think it's important for arts organizations to set up something similar. I know there's a lot of things going on now. With I, I know dance better than I know the other art forms, but people are doing things. But children from the shelters or that are very disadvantaged aren't usually included because they come with a different set of problems. 
everybody comes with some problems. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but it's just a different set of problems that have to be dealt with. You know, everybody has something. And I think people are a little afraid of that. And this shows that you don't have to be. And that with the, that you can set something up. And yes, it's hard work, but it should be done. These children shouldn't be forgotten. And I think that also when you think of homelessness, you think of the man sleeping in the street. But there's a whole nother group of homeless people and their children who have talent and are smart. And why should they not have equal opportunities just because they don't have a home and they're transient? You have to figure out, you know, they're here and then they're living somewhere else and then they're living someone else. How do you make that all work. And I think that's part of what arts should be myself. I, that's what I think. Well, you know, I think as a young person, one of the most important things you need is stability, stability of some kind, whether that be through parents or a place where you live and uh, people you affiliate with or a program like yours. And it seems that for young people who move around a lot, who don't have that type of stability, a program like yours can give them that base of stability that they need to to grow from. Thank you for that. And I want to just say now, as you as we wind down the interview, you're about to step off from this as being head of the ballet company. As you move forward with your life, uh, what will you hope that the ballet is able to continue to do as you move off the scene? What are you, what are you hoping for the, for the company? And then ultimately at some point for the school as well? Well, for the company, I would like to be able to do more of what we're doing. One of my philosophies is to go on tour and do live performances in cities that aren't even on the map where they never get anything live, where the families are just computer, computer, computer. And I'd like to be able to do that much more than we're doing because touring has changed over the years, not just because of COVID. And it's been less and less. So I'm hoping that we can find a way and find the funding to be able to tour coast to coast the way we used to and go to these smaller communities with live dance and music because we use live musicians when we tour and when we perform in New York. So that's very important to me that the touring um, is much longer than what it is now. Certainly to keep lift going and just the kind of dance we do to keep giving people opportunities to give choreographers and dancers a platform where they can take risks and if they fail you can pick yourself up and try again, that the failure doesn't completely push them out of the art form. And that's what a smaller company can do. We can give opportunities to young people to fail. And I think that's important. And then with the school, you know, certainly keep lift going, keep teaching, keep teaching learning skills, love of art, love of dance, and create young people that have a place in society where they can help other young people, you know, that it's just year after year. Well, I, I really have enjoyed this. I am actually moved by what you've created here. And 
the consistency that you've provided it over the last 44 years. And I just want to, on behalf of all of the young people who you've touched and the audiences that you've reached and the performers whose lives were affected by, you know, the spark of genius that you had to create this and the energy that you've had to sustain it all these years. I just want to thank you and congratulate you and wish you well as you move off into your next chapter and also have the highest hopes for the organizations that you've seeded and that you've grown into now stable organizations that they'll be able to be this rock for many young people for many years to come. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. And so to all of our listeners, I want to thank you for listening. If this is the first time that you've heard the Heart of Giving podcast, feel free to subscribe so that you can get all future editions. And if you want to, of course, support the podcast, you can do so by going to give.org or Patreon to make a donation. And let me thank you again, Diana Beyer, for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This is wonderful. Thank you. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.